Welcome to the Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Colby Cole. On this episode, we have DJ, artist, uh, producer, entrepreneur, legend in the game, uh, one of my favorite people in hip hop, Mr. DJ Kid Capri. What's up, my brother Cole? What's up, man? How you doing? I don't have I don't got the Kid Capri voice, so I can't. <laughs> That's all good. But I wanna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you something because there's some things you probably don't know about me. Like me and you have a lot in common. We're pretty much the same age, mm-hmm. but you know me mainly from Philadelphia. That's kind of where your connect is. But I'm actually, my family is from Harlem, so I, you know, my parents were divorced, so we, I lived in Philly and I went to school, and then I would spend my weekends and summers in New York. And my dad lived at 143rd between Broadway and Amsterdam. And so I spent a lot of time in that community. And I remember you before you was even famous, bro. Like you used to sell mixtapes around there. I can't remember the name of the place, though, but I remember you just looking at you like and when you became famous, I was like, I know that guy. And so you're like this very interesting perspective on hip hop because we are celebrating 50 years of hip hop. But you are a child of hip hop as I am. And you've lived through this entire thing and you've got so much deep connection to all aspects of hip hop. And uh, the reason why I reconnected with you, because you we were at a private party a couple of weeks ago and I was sitting there with my wife and then I saw you come in. I was like, oh, cool, I'm gonna go talk to kid when, when it settles down. But then you ended up DJing and I didn't get a chance to see you. But then you tore it down. And I was like, man, I miss this guy. <laughs> like I miss this, like this energy, this party, like so, man. I just wanted to show you a little of love before we jump heavy head first into it. But like you're somebody I really respect, and I really like just watched you and just watched all the moves that you've made, and just how you still relevant today, how you've transformed yourself over the years. It's just a real pleasure to have you on the backstory as we celebrate 50 years of hip hop. Thank you, brother. It's my pleasure, man. Feels a neutral, man. You stayed in and did your thing, man. Always been good, man. Never had no bad talk about you. Always did great interviews for people and always show love, man. So we all need you. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, for sure. Let's just go start from the beginning because in the backstory, we really just talk about, you know, a, a, a person's journey. And again, you're a first generation hip hop head. So you grew up in New York. And I guess mainly the Bronx is that is that your background? The Bronx is where you where you were raised, or were you a little bit of Brooklyn and then the Bronx? Yeah, when I was born in Brooklyn, I was raised in the Bronx, and um, that's where I pretty much started music and everything at right there. When I as soon as I moved there, that, that first year, as a matter of fact, uh, I'm eight years old starting, you know, and um, and you know, hip hop was created in the Bronx, so you know, it it, it was uh, it was fortunate for me to live five minutes, 10 minutes away from Cedar Avenue where Cool Herc was at, where his building was at. I lived right down the street. So, you know, I, it was a, it was destined for me to be here today because I seen all the levels of being in the Bronx and, you know, getting the chance to be there when there was no money involved, you know, yeah. and um, eventually getting to that. Now we here. That's what makes your, um, you just such a, you know, an interesting part of hip hop history. Like a thousand years from now, when they look back on hip hop, there's going to be a lot of Kid Capri talk because you grew up and then you were able to transform throughout 10 year period of hip hop, which now hip hop changes every like two years. It's like it used to be you get a 10 year run. Now it's like almost a two year run, but you've kind of watched all that. So let's go back to just eight year old Kid Capri in the Bronx, you know, seeing all this. hip. What was that moment where you was just like, man, I got to do this shit. This is me right here. Like I said in a lot of interviews, uh, when I seen a guy named Joe, 
shooting dice and saying yes, yes, y'all to the beach, y'all throwing the dice on the wall. And then I went to a party. I'm, I'm looking at him saying, what is he? What does he mean? Yes, yes. What is he saying? It was like a new language he was saying. It wasn't a song, you know. What I'm saying it was just, it was just like a new language. So that week, I went to a party in a place called Marble Hill Projects in the community center. And there was a group called Rockwell Incorporated playing there and a DJ named B-Boy and all his MCs, they used to be on the echo chamber and they were saying, yes, yes, y'all, y'all to the beach, y'all. This is the first time I'm hearing this. So I seen B-Boy DJing and it just made me stuck. I'm just looking at this dude, man. I ain't do nothing. I ain't move. I'm just watching him. And, you know, that's when I ran home, told moms I wanted to be that. And she ain't understand it, didn't know nothing about it. We didn't have a lot of money at the time to buy equipment and stuff like that. So she brought me a mixer that had no headphone hole and a little tape deck. And this mixer that had no headphone hole was the reason why I got better than everybody in the neighborhood because I had to guess all the spots of where I was playing at because I had no headphones to hear it. And I got so good at it as this little kid standing on a milk crate that the older dudes were looking at me like I was some kind of Martian or something. And um, I just stayed with it, man. And, and, and um, it was just something that that was just gonna be a part of me regardless because my father's a soul singer. My, my granddad played trumpet for all the great, you know, jazz players at the time of his uh, ever. And, you know, the music always been around my family. So, you know, it was definitely that when it was coming out, I was gonna be a part of it, but I didn't know. I knew I was gonna be in it, but I didn't know I was gonna be here. I knew I would be doing something, but I didn't know it would be this, but I never really had a, a plan B. So with that type of attitude, I was destined for success in this because I never felt like I was gonna have anything else to fall back on. I wasn't looking, thinking of it like that. I was thinking of it as it's gonna work and that's it. Well, you, you always have been known for your work ethic. We come from a just different generation where like we didn't have no, we didn't have all the stuff that these people have today. Like you really had to work for every little ounce or inch of anything you wanted. You had to work for it. Talk a little bit about just the, the that grind and how I, you said you didn't have a lot of money. None of us had any money. Right. So you had to figure out how to get the equipment. And then you went on your journey as, as making mixtapes and whatnot. But it costs money to do all that. So talk a little bit about how hard you work, because you, you didn't just try to do the music. You actually had jobs and you were going to school. Like there was a lot of things you had on your plate, but somehow you maneuvered through this to follow your dream. Yeah, it's funny. I was just talking about this with uh, my family yesterday. Um, I had a lot of jobs, man. I had a lot of jobs. I, you know, I worked in nine different D'Agostino supermarkets. I was with everything from a delivery man to a meat uh, delivery guy to a meat, uh, the meat department. I worked as, uh, I used to sell stuff from the street. I used to walk dogs for, for the neighbors. I used to go to the store for the neighbors. Um, I used to work in uh, Barnes and Nobles. Uh, well, I used to work at the Butler Shoe Store. Then I worked into Barnes and Nobles bookstore. And that's when I, that day, when I decided to leave Barnes and Noble, because of a racist slur that I heard, um, I, I let the people keep the check that I was supposed to get. And I decided I was going to be my boss from that day on, and I never looked back. But I always worked. And I, I, you know, even before that, I was working with uh, underprivileged children. I was working with women that were raped. I was almost like a rape counselor. And, um, you know, so I always had a job, always did my thing. And, you know, and this is while I was trying to get on this kick and pray, you know, um, but I always had some way to do my thing. But when I decided to really do this and really say, you know what, I'm not working for nobody no more. I'm be my own boss. And that's just the way it's going to be from that day on. It always been like that. So I'm very grateful for that. And that don't really work out for you know, everybody. But it worked out for me. I guess God seen me in a way that uh, he, went, he wanted to use me as one of his disciples to try to um, create opportunities for other people and, you know, possibly change some things. 
So talk a little bit about just mixtape because you were really the mixtape pioneer in the sense of just, you know, like flipping it. There was a lot of dudes doing it, but you like took it to another level again because you got this work ethic. So talk a little bit about just the origins of your mixtape and your distribution model you had in your brain and how you'd like how that worked out for you. The tapes I used to hear from the other guys, you know, Boosie B, Star Child, Lovebug, Starsky, Hollywood, they were all great. You know what I'm saying? I was a big fan of these guys and, you know, me playing with Star Child at the time back then. It gave me a lot of insight of how they did what they did. When I came about and I landed, I wanted to bring a different type of approach to it. And I think what it was is that it stuck worldly because I became a fan more than about myself, more than about me. And I'm not saying that to anybody else, but for me, it was more about the fan and how would I want a person, how would I want to hear myself if I was a person that bought one of my tapes and put it in my car and listened to myself? What would, What's the feeling that I want to get? And that's what I think it is. I want you to feel me more than hear me. So I think that's why it became so infectious to people to where people would come from out of town to New York to try to get these tapes because there was no internet. You had to physically come to the store yep. and get tape just like you went to a record shop, but there was, these tapes wasn't in every record shop. So you had to come to the store where the record shop, where the tapes was at. And that would be in New York, unless somebody copied them and brought them to their city and they would have them in their store. And, you know, and, and um, so that's how it went. And when it got to the point where I started seeing growth of how big these things was becoming, it just it just gave me a different perspective on how I should how I should really take it real serious. I, I always been serious about it, but it, it, as far as the business, I was just I was just doing what I like to do. But then I started seeing the money, and I started seeing the attention I was getting. And I started seeing that you know I'm getting phone calls from people I was never getting phone calls before or from before, and I was getting uh, offers and stuff like that just for me sitting on the corner and not having an ego worrying about girls laughing at me as I'm sitting there because they think I'm peddling or whatever they think I'm doing bad or whatever, you know, not having that ego and, and caring about what I'm doing and just sat there and did it. And that attitude is what took me to be one of the greatest performers on stage as far as the DJ is concerned, to be the first to have an album, you know, as a rapper, as a, a DJ, as a rapper on the album, because I couldn't make records DJing. So I had to be a rapper on my first album. I got my first radio deal. I got my first television show, Def Comedy Jam, which was unheard of. No DJ was on a show with comedians and stuff. It was just so much that was happening because I decided to take my ego, put it to the side and sit on the street corners and sell them tapes. While the drug dealers were selling 20 out of cracks, yeah, yeah. I was selling 20 out of tapes. You know what I'm saying? And, and it worked out. It worked out for myself. It worked out for people that that was trying to get heard that wasn't on the radio. They didn't have no video out, but they could get heard and get shows on my on my tape. And you know, it, it worked out for people. And, and and it took me to where I needed to be. It was a stepping stone. It wasn't a career move. That's why I stopped as you know at the top of it and left it and then went and did my career the way, other way. And that was because they were saying I was making all this money. For me, street tapes, millions of dollars over street tapes, which wasn't true. It was, you know, other people copying them and selling them yeah. and, you know, buying houses and cars and stuff. And I wasn't going to be accountable, accountable for that. So I decided to stop making them and take my career a different way. And with the power of God, it worked out. Well, you also got Bismarck Gee kind of told you that he was going to get you a record deal and you didn't really believe him. Talk a little bit about that. You get this record deal in the in the at the beginning of I always look at um, hip hop in phases, and so like if you were a New Yorker 
you know, the first phase was a real huge New York thing. And then then you get into the, you know, the mid 80s and you get it, it starts expanding everywhere. But you're like right at the cusp of uh, when it went a little West Coast and the East Coast started to come back. You get this record deal with Cold Chillin. So talk a little bit about that, because Cold Chillin at the time was like that was a big deal label if you wanted to be in hip hop. Yeah. And that and that goes to show like when you make yourself warm up and get hot, people will come for you. You know what I'm saying? They want to they want to be in your in your business. So when Biz told me about getting it, that he was gonna give me this deal, I'm on I'm, so I'm on the corner of 54th Street and 8th Avenue, just coming out of Studio 54. I'm sitting there with Crater Records, and he pulls up on me in the MPV. Yo, get you a record deal. You hot in the street? I'm gonna get you a record deal. I was like, shut up, Biz. I don't. You ain't want no record deal. I wasn't <laughs> right, even thinking right. about no record deal, but more than that, I ain't believe him. Right. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And then next thing you know, I'm in Bert Pedell's office with a record deal with all this money. So, you know... I wasn't trying to be a rapper. I, I wasn't. That wasn't my my uh, focus. But that's what I had to do to make the album I wanted to make. And it's ironic. Thirty years later, I come out with a new album, The Love, rhyming on the whole album, and sounding the way I'm sounding, and produced the whole thing. You know, and we can get into that. But yep. to see where I came from, to see where I'm at right now, is something to really be proud of. And, and you know, for myself, you know, I don't know how anybody else feel, but to see it, as far as making records and stuff like that, because that's never really been my bread and butter making making records and albums and all that. I only got three albums, you know what I'm saying? Because I, I was good doing what I'm doing, you know, and I always had my own lane. So, but when I did my first album with Biz, that was special, you know, because he could have gave that to anybody else that was a credible rapper at the time. That was somebody that was probably more deserving of it. Yes, I, I worked and I put the work in for what I've done, but there was other people at the time that really could have used that. That really worked to get an album deal, and you know, and, and he gave it to me. So I'm very grateful for that. He always been my brother, you know, and I miss him, you know, like crazy because he ain't here no more. But he's always gonna be in my heart. Well, then he followed in your footsteps, and that that was sort of like the second phase of his career was being a phenomenal DJ. So the crazy thing about that was he was he was at my house one day and I said, Biz, you're not making no records right now. I said, You Biz Monkey, everybody know who you are. You a character, you funny, you what you are. I said, you should DJ. And I gave him a crate of records. I gave him this crater. He never gave my crate back. So I gave him this crate of records. Wow. And he went and started playing and he never looked back. Next thing you know, I started seeing him playing in places I was playing at. But he was Biz Mark. You know, he he could have done anything. Like he did Yo Gabba Gabba. He was a whole big star in Yo Gabba Gabba. And them kids didn't even know he he made records. He come from making records. They didn't care about that. They cared about him on that television show. And and that's what I'm saying. You don't have to be stuck in one place. You know what I'm saying? You could you people sometimes they want to typecast you and pitch you. They know you to be this. They don't see nothing else. You know what I'm saying? But it's up to you to be talented enough or have the strategy enough to do these different things and be able to be accepted in those different things, you know? So Biz was definitely one of those guys. He was one of them dudes that, 
there'll never be another one. No, no, for sure. He was yeah. an and just a nice guy. Like, you know, just incredible man. Straight up, like beautiful person. You know, yeah. and you can't say that about everybody in, in hip hop. So th- let's just talk a little bit about the Def Comedy Jam because then you got the the album and then you get Def Comedy Jam. And that was just a, a just a very important part in American black history. That was just something that again, you'll look back on you know, hundreds of years to see how much energy came out of that moment. But you particularly on the show, you made it a performance for the DJ. You set the tone. You created the energy. You just picked the right beats with uh, with the person was coming out. I know part of that is with the comedian, but it was just that whole energy. Talk about just the entrance of into television, HBO for Def Comedy Jam and your you know, stamp that you put on that because you you definitely did something a little bit different that we had never seen on television before. It was weird to me when it was brought to me, but when we did it, I didn't I didn't know it was going to be as big as it was going to be. Oh, uh, I was just feeling we were just doing something that was good. You know, I really thought it was from I, for some reason I really thought it was just something for New York. I wasn't even thinking about HBO and how big it was going to be. And you know, the real party was before the cameras came on. That's when it really was crazy when people were coming in and it was sitting yeah. down. It was party time then because I had it crazy and this and this was the strategy to get everybody in the mood so that when the comedians come out, they were already be in party mode. And that's what we did when we went on tour as well. I would do a 15, 20 minute set, have these people in a frenzy so that when the co- comedians come out, it just be it would just be at a high, very high level. It'd be no downtime at all. So with the TV show, um, like I said, I didn't expect it to be that big. I didn't expect it to to last as many seasons as it, as it did. You know, I really didn't see it. And then all of a sudden we go on tour and the very first show when the curtains open, these people were screaming for me like I was Michael Jackson. So that set the tone for how I played in my parties because I would have a 15 minute set and I would have to play the records quick. I would have to run through the records quick. So I started seeing how the people were losing their mind to this. And I applied, I started applying it to the parties. And that was one of the things that the DJ seen, you know, and uh, became a new style of how to play. With a lot of different things I might have done that became a new style, I definitely put a lot of blueprints out there. But that was definitely one where DJs would play the whole song or maybe two verses of the song. And, you know, the energy and the impact is not there like that because of it. This was a new way of doing it. And it works out every time, you know, people lose it. Talk about how it changed your life, though, because you... Again, you thought it was a New York thing. Give me a moment where you where you recognize, like, oh, wait a minute, like when I was starting to get chased by women. When I was starting to get chased everywhere I went, and you know, I'm I'm running from people and stuff like that. It was, you know, even then, it was still like I don't know, man. I look at things, I look at things as you know, um, it with all everything positive. So I I didn't look at your kid. You become this person dog you becoming this this guy like you becoming becoming this i didn't look at it like that I was i was just doing what i like doing right you know and you don't see that you don't see the the impact and how you changing people's lives and 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 what you're doing until you start seeing different people coming up and saying yo it's because of you i'm not robbing somebody i'm not going to somebody's house right now i follow what you did and i'm doing what you're doing and that right there changed my life and hearing that that's more than money. You're, you're indirectly knowing that you're changing people's lives around you that yeah. could possibly hurt be hurting somebody else. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, so when you it's, start inspiration that, is a hell of a drug, man. Yeah, you start seeing that. You're seeing lines going around the building. When you come in the building to do a show, you know, everywhere you go, everywhere, everywhere it's like, you know, you've never been booed. It's always been good. You know, that's when I started realizing, like, God put me in for a reason. I just always remember Kid Capri moments just whenever I would see you. Like, I remember, I think it was the Apollo, and I believe it was an Aaliyah. It was Master Square Garden. I, I remember, like, a, it was Busta Rhymes, Aaliyah. So it was like... Yeah, what happened was, me and Busta was just talking about that. I went on tour with Aaliyah to help her with her show. We was on tour with Mary J. Blige, Genuine, True Hill, and... um. That was the 90s. Oh, Bone Thugs and Harmony. Yeah. And she needed somebody that was aggressive to come out in the middle of a show, so they asked me to come do it. And I would do this 15-minute set on tour. But when we got to the garden... What happened was I did my set. Place was going crazy, man. I never did a show like that. I think that was probably my biggest show. But then I had seen Buster before I went on stage and told him I was bringing him on stage. I ain't asked him. I told him I was bringing him on. We were just talking about this. Yeah. And he had just dropped. Put your hands where I could see. I brought him on stage, man. And you know, to this day, we talk about the wind from the people's breath screaming at us that we felt on our face. I'm glad that he was there. To witness this because if i'd have said that people would look at me like i had a big head but he was there to witness this what this was like it, it was it was so electric and so much it was just I, I can't even explain how big it was as a matter of fact my daughter's mother she was there at the show and she always went to concerts you know and she told me she said she never seen nothing like that she said it looked like people were just throwing people she said i've never seen anything like that it was just the most incredible show ever and again I'm just doing what I what I like doing. Yeah, you know I'm not trying to be better than nobody or or any of that. I just always wanted to make the DJ be looked at as an artist and not just somebody playing records. So that's where that came from. No, but again, it's just again. See, I can tell you that because I remember like it's funny. Like I would always try to go to New York to see like any tour, any big show. I would go to the, to the New York show because I would always be a moment. Like I, I mean, I used to go see Hove every time he would do something at the Garden because I knew that it was going to be a movie. Um, but watching you uh, during that time period, like, you know, what's interesting is that like you named all of those artists, like you've been through so many eras of, of black music over the past, you know, 40, 50 years. Like, it's just incredible in your mind, how, how you like, when you DJ, how do you like place all of that stuff? It's so much music that you've been exposed to so much great music. Do you ever find yourself in the moment doing a party? Like not feeling like you can't get everything out. Like there's all this music you want to play, but you can't, you can't figure out the best way to, to lay it out. Cause you got so much history inside of you. Well, everything ain't for everybody. You know, um, I can go deep, but deep doesn't get the job done in every, not in every other situation. You have to be able to understand that as you, when you step in the room and you step on that stage, it's you against a whole bunch of people that you got to satisfy that you don't even know. You never met these people. You don't know their attitudes. You don't know what makes them tick, what makes them go off, what makes them mad. You don't know none of that. All you got, all you got to know is that you got to satisfy all of them at one time. How do you do that? You got to become them. It ain't about you. It's bigger than you. So when you become them, you become a fan of you. You look at yourself as if, how would I want to feel if I was out there and I paid my money to watch myself? What would make me want to come back? What would make a promoter want to hire him again? You know, and, and these things is uh is very uh selfless 
when you when you uh, selfless about it, you could you could uh, see it as a as one thing. It's not it's not me and, and them. It's we all together. So how we gonna get this done together? And the music that you may select, I could I could select one uh, set, and that one set will work everywhere around the world. I'll never have to change it because I know what's going to work. So if I want to go a different way, if I want to bring something more eclectic, something that's more not clubbish something that's more you know different it's how you do it anybody can play these records it's just how you do it so that's the ingredient knowing what to do at a timely fashion knowing that something that might work at one o'clock in the morning may not work at 10 30 at night because people are just coming in people are just getting settled they're not drunk yet they don't you know they, their problems are still on their mind they look for you to get their problems off their mind for the two or three hours that they're with you. So they got to get themselves settled in. And once they get settled in, they get a drink, you know, they loosen up, mingle, meet somebody, talk, whatever the case may be, and then they're on their way. And it's up to you to take them to that to that level. But you have to know that timing is everything. Patience is everything. And it's not about you. It's about the event. And when you make it about that, you'll find yourself doing events for 35 years. Well, you you approach DJing as a show, like a performance, where you know a lot of DJs they don't do that. Like you really go in. I mean, it is a performance. Like I mean, I was just you just because me and my wife were watching you, and I was just like, look at this. Like I have to do this for a living. I go to parties and events all over the country all the time. There's nothing like this. And you, we were at a New York party, and it, it felt good because you gave a New York sort of playlists uh you went and you did everything but you definitely did that new york stuff that only new yorkers would really like relate to but it was so interesting watching you because you in the zone bro like you just i'm sure you've watched videos of yourself but it's like you're some you become like somebody else when you get up there you're so humble you're so quiet and then you just get up there and that voice just comes out um and again that was part of the the deaf comedy jam your voice was a major instrument in the success of that show. There's nothing like hearing you say your name, but also just the energy of your voice. Like, oh, my God, I know it's about to be a moment. And, it, and there's an art to that. I want you to feel me more than hear me. When you're a performer, when you, there's different ways, you know, people do things. You know, you can be a bus driver, right? When you go home at night, you may have a certain way you do things. You know, you take your clothes off, you put your pajamas on, you put your slippers on, you read your paper, you do whatever you do, right? Then when you get in your bus, you got to put this different attitude on. You are you around people, you're around strangers, you know. You have to be a different person. You're a different person than you're at home. Your performance level raises up because your awareness becomes different. Your home is your safety net. But when you're out here in the world, you have to be a more on your, on your, when you're grinding and, and on your awareness. So you automatically become this other person. It's the same thing with the stage. When I get off the stage, I'm not kicking free all day. I hate a little rapper that walks around like a little rap all day. I'm David Love, you know? So McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
when I wake up, I'm David Love. When I go to sleep, I'm David Love. When I'm not doing business, I'm David Love. When I need to be kicking free, I turn it on. And it turns on in a way where it turns on to, it's going to really turn on. You know what I'm saying? But that could be, I could be sick. I could be not in the mood. I could be whatever. Once I get on that stage, I don't feel no pains. I don't feel no sickness. I don't feel nothing. And then when I get off the stage, I feel like I ran into a wall because I'm so hurt. But once I'm there, I'm just a different person. And it is it's weird. It's weird. You know, I heard Beyonce say that the Sasha Fierce thing, you know, she become yeah. I get it because you become this other thing. You become again, it's not about you. You have to satisfy all of these people. This is not like you just gotta be home with your wife or with your kids. This is something where you satisfying people that they're either gonna talk good about you afterwards or talk bad about you afterwards. And then you got an internet to worry about. This ain't like back in the days. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So you gotta be on your game. And people got to feel you. They got to know you're If I didn't take the stance I, I took in the DJ business, who would have believed me? If I get on stage and I don't show that confidence, how are you going to believe me? Yeah. So you said you're David Love, but your name, everyone has an origin story for your name. Your name is actually a, a tribute to a friend. Tell everybody a little bit about what Kid Capri is, where, where that came from. Uh, Olga Carter. She was a girl in our, in our neighborhood that was around our block, and uh, she used to hang out with us all the time. And you know, I had a terrible name, DJ Doctor Spank, and she said Kick a Pre Sign a good name for a DJ while I was walking in class. And um, tried it. A few months later, she was uh, shot by a straight bullet, and she died in my uncle's arms. As a matter of fact, but she was shot by a straight bullet, so I kept the name. That's beautiful, man. That's beautiful. So let's talk a little bit about um, hip hop in the '90s. You know, there was so much happening. There was East Coast, West Coast. You just really maintained through all of that. And then, you know, we, we had the notorious B.I.G. and Tupac deaths. And talk about, you know, your place in hip hop during that era. And how did you deal with that when it happened? You know, when you when we went through that moment, that that change. And, we, and me and you have a very similar Tupac story, which I'll I'll tell you after that. If you remember the Source Awards, when it happened, when Shook said what he said, I was the announcer on the television. I was also sitting in the fifth row when it all went down. So the energy in that room felt like something was going to pop off at any time. It was just, it wasn't a good energy at I all. I was there. I remember. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it, it was very tense. In the middle of the West Coast and the East Coast, whatever y'all want to call it, whatever they call it, uh, the beef, whatever, really, which it wasn't you no know, coast to coast. It was really two people, but two people that was very significantly big and the two coasts was with them so that's where it becomes the east west coast thing and then you know you provide put the magazine out with big on the front yeah with the west coast beef coast, you know all that it all contribute to it but in the middle of that beef i was going back and forth to the west coast constantly and they showed me super love i never had one issue never one had one problem and I think maybe because I always supported the West Coast. I always supported the women. Whenever I go to, it, you know, even now, just recently, I did, I put it, my last video I put out is Serial with Snoop Dogg. Me and Snoop made records throughout time. And then I also just did a record with Daz and Little Easy E. That's on Little Easy E new album that's just dropping. So I always supported the West Coast. And... Right in the middle of me going out there, my, all my shows was crowded. Everything was packed. Not one issue, not one fight, no shootouts. No, no, I never had fights and shootouts at my parties anyway, nowhere. But at that time, the tension was so heavy, you never knew what was going to happen. 
Right. You know what I'm saying? But I never had an issue, you know. But it was very dangerous time, you know, and to lose two of those dudes, man, you know, that was just, that was a big waste. A big, big waste. It was a big, and then, you know, let's, let's take us out of it and our personal feelings out of it. They got mothers, man, you know, big out of moms, you know? So imagine how they felt. Well, I, I, I heard you in another interview talk about one of your last interactions with Pac, which was very similar to mine. I, I saw Pac in July of uh, 95 was the last time I seen him in person. And so that was a year before his death. And I went to give him a hug and he had a bulletproof vest on. And I was so shocked because I was like, I, w- I mean, we just, I was, wasn't used to that. Like, it, it, and I said, is it like that Pac? And he was like, it's like that. Yeah, when I hugged, when I hugged him, he had the bulletproof vest on. When I yeah. sent him downtown, I remember one time I was in LA. We was in uh, it was about three o'clock in the morning. I was we was in somewhere in Crenshaw or somewhere, and we went to some restaurant, and nobody was in the restaurant but Tupac and somebody else. I don't know who whoever else was in, but it was but nobody else in the right. restaurant. It was three o'clock in the morning. We just packing this dude, and I hugged Pac. Then he was like, "Oh shit, kid, what you doing here?" Hugged him up, had to, had to pull the, uh, the vest on then. So he was really. He had to know that his life was in danger in some kind of way. He kind of, kind of, I don't know if he kind of seen it coming or he felt it, or it was just his environment that made him feel like he had to, had it, had to roll like that. You know, um, very controversial dude, man. A lot of people know who Pac was. He spoke what he, what he spoke. He meant what he said. You know, some things you may agree with, some things you don't, you know. But when you become a target like that, when you become so prolific and so, um, in your face like that, you know, you become a target in a lot of different ways, whether it's media, whether it's, you know, law enforcement, whether it's some chick that want to come up, you know, whether it's the dudes that you may be rolling with that, that, you know, may not have your better interests at hand. You know, I don't know who that may be, you know, so it's a lot that you got to look out for. And that's why you got to kind of like move accordingly. Yeah, no. And he, he was a really good guy though. Like, you know, incredible dude. We, 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 we could tell stories about early Tupac, and I try to teach people all the time about the other Tupac, not the Tupac that they like to show you videos and stuff of. But yeah. even just having a conversation with him, the guy was just, was brilliant. I mean, he was just way ahead of his time. And, uh, you know, it was, really, it was really hurtful when he died. And then big six months later, and I often think, and maybe you do too, about what would hip-hop be like if those brothers didn't go. You know what? Where would they be in the in the game right now? What what influence would they be having today if they were still alive? Incredible influence. They would have been uh, looked at as Mount Rushmore's. Yeah. Pac had so much music, man. Pac had so much music. Pac recorded all day long, all day. You see how many records he came out after he passed away? Yep. It's so much music. Big don't have didn't have that much music. Nope. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. and to be still revered as the way big was, you know, that's an incredible accomplishment to not even be able to live out your second album, but the impact was just so in, in, incredible. You know, you, you got to give it up. You got to take your hat off to that. What did that feel like for you? Cause we saw big just explode and he gives you a nice shout out on one of his first big records. Well, that's just a testament of, of work, man. You put in your work, you know, I've been shouted out on many, many, many records, you know, but that comes from the, the general respect that people have for you when they know that you put in your work. You know, you really, you really, really did what you were supposed to do. And, and not only that, you know, a lot of times, like I said, I would support people that wasn't getting supported from nowhere else, you know, 
that will stick with people. So when they get when they get a chance to get on or whatever it is, even if it's just a shout out, you know, that's their way of thanking me, you know, and I would just take that for what it is. And when Big did it, you know, it was just his way of just thanking me, you know, yeah. or his way of saying, yo, you did your thing, kid. That's how I took it. So also in the 90s, uh, Martin Lawrence, who you started with on the Def Comedy Jam, ended up getting his own sitcom. And you had a really big part of just the presence of Martin from what you did on the Def Comedy Jam. Mm -hmm. What was that like for you? And did you get royalties for that, for how to use your voice on a TV show? Absolutely not. So how did, how does that work that you didn't get no, paid? No, what do you mean? Which TV show are you talking about? Martin Which, Lawrence, like his no, TV show. Absolutely not. Wasn't that your voice that you used in, never the, in the intro? They never cleared that with me, and they know they never cleared it with me. And Martin, when they had the re reunion, when they just had the uh, Martin reunion, yeah. he went on there and said that it was Cole's voice, knowing damn well it was my voice, that and everybody knows it was my voice. So, yeah. you know, now we have a different issue. But all these years, I never said nothing. I never made a big deal out of it. And none of them never came and say, okay, here's a bag. You know, we never got permission to use it. But, you know, we, you know, you good. He's Martin Lawrence. He's super rich. He's good. And I'm not looking, you know, I, I, don't, I don't need nothing. But, you know, just the respect level, you know, we and you come from Def Comedy Jam together. You know what I'm saying? I would think that, you know, you would have a certain amount of respect. You would go on and say another man did it because you didn't pay and get permission. And you feel like you're going to have a legal issue. Now you go on and saying that it's not me. That's not going to bring you an issue. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, listen, I'm surprised that they even, a network would even clear that without not know. I mean, today that would never happen. They, right. you, you know, you should have gotten some royalties for that. Well, I mean, it, it's never too late. Yeah, it is It is not. And I hope that, that uh, you have a good attorney because that show is still uh, showing in a lot of different places all over the world. So oh, it's never too late. It's never too late. So we get to the 2000s and, and again, Hip hop is is transforming. What is your favorite era of hip hop? Because it's just so many different times in the in the genre that um, that we can talk about, you know. But what what would you say is a personal kick Capri favorite? My favorite era of hip hop is probably the beginning because there was no money involved, there was no egos, there was no corporate involved, there was no none of that. And it was also told us that it wouldn't last. Yeah. It was also told us it was noise. So you tell a little kid they can't do something, they get rebellious, they want to do it. That's yeah. the same thing that happened with hip hop. They told us we couldn't do it, we shouldn't do it. Why are we doing it? And we showed them. So to me, that was the best time because you didn't have no expectations. You just did what you did for fun. You had fun with it. It was just fun. It was no, I had to impress anybody. I had to do it. You just did what you did and people were automatically impressed. If you look at the overall spectrum, people would say the 90s is the best time, you know? But that's for people that came through the 90s. If you come through now, you may say that this is your best time. Correct, yeah. You know what I'm saying? You didn't live in the 90s to witness that. You know, contrary to popular belief, the 60s might have been the best time when Motown was popping and all that was shaking. None of us was there hanging out with, you know, those type with those people at that time to know the feeling of that. Being a black man at that time, all the doors closed in your face and you become yeah. successful and be able to change, the, travel the world and make money and look good doing it, that was a big accomplishment. That's not like jumping on the net, making yourself look a certain way and making it and, and fooling everybody. This right. is the real, that was the real shit right there. So, yeah. you know, I look at that as being, you know, the best time because we were trying to make it. We were trying to, we were just having fun. We wasn't, pardon me, we wasn't trying to make it. We were just trying to have fun and just do right. what we wanted to do. And, you know, 
then when money became a part of it, now you had to have this expectation. You had to look a certain way, dress a certain way, and move a certain way, and you know, do things a certain way. And that's cool. It's always great for progress and change. That's what it's about. But you ask me my personal best time. That's when the money wasn't a part of it. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning their chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And so do you have a favorite artist from that era like or album that you just like when it comes on, you know, you like, like for me, it's always Run DMC. Like I could go back to Run DMC and listen to that music today and listen to a whole album because I just love it so much. It just means so much to me and has so much impact. And it just took me back to a time in my life when, you know, I was appreciating this art. Is there, is there a particular artist or album that you just remember that just like, man, it just makes Kid Capri feel great. I can't really uh, say that because my spectrum of thinking of music is so wide. Right. You know what I'm saying? There's records that didn't blow up that nobody know about that's just as good as a record that somebody know about that blew up. Somewhere in the world, there was a Michael Jordan when Michael Jordan was Michael Jordan, but you knew Michael Jordan. You didn't know the dude that was like Michael Jordan. Right. You feel what I'm saying? So, no, no, I feel you. That's, that's, that's right. Yeah, you see what I'm saying? So, you know, I, I didn't, I, you know, when somebody asked me who's my top five MCs of all time. I can't like, answer to myself. I can't do it. I don't have that. <laughs> I can't do it. I don't have uh, that. There's no top five. There's too many two yeah. dope dudes. Yeah. If you're talking about top five sellers, we can go that. If you're talking about top yeah. five lyricists, there's too many dudes out there. Why is yeah. a Twister on a list of top five? Who's beating yeah. Twister? Yeah. Who's beating Eminem? Yeah. So you can't say who's top five because there's so many dope dudes. Look at battle rappers, the most brilliant rappers in the world. That's hard. It's like I've, I'm, I always bow out on those conversations because I was like, it's an, I have too much hip hop knowledge in my brain to give you five of anything, and it's just right. different eras and different beats. And you know, if we fast forward, uh, kid, you know, you have been a part of even on your your 1998 album and your 1991 album, whatever whoever was hot at the time was a part of your project. And you've had a chance to just work with a bunch of artists, including like Madonna. Like a lot of people don't know that about you, but you work with Madonna. Like not a lot of rap cats can say I work with Madonna. And from my understanding, you guys did a song that never came out, but she still paid you for it. We did Masterpiece that came out, but she paid me for another song that didn't come that never came out and paid me the same money she paid me for Masterpiece. So she's A1 with me. I got a lot of love for her. But then it's Kendrick Lamar comes around who is really our our big star of today one of the bigger uh mcs of today and he puts his damn album out and he has you all over it so talk a little bit about your connection to to someone like kendrick lamar and again that speaks volumes for you man to from from where you came from and still today and i remember the first time hearing your voice and i was like that's kid capri when i listened to that album and i was like wow that's really cool Again, like I said, you put your work in, man. You reap the rewards of what you do, man. As long as you do it clean and don't hurt nobody and be nice about it, it's going to work. And he knew it's great for a young dude like that to really know the story of what I was, what I am, and what I've done. You know, and I asked him, what he, you know, why didn't he get DJ Poole or Battlecat legends over there in the West Coast to be on there to do it? He said, you know, he loved them dudes, you know. 
but he know what I did for the music business. He know what I did for the DJ. He know what I did for the music business as a whole. Yeah. You know, I changed R and B. You know, everything I did, he knew about. And it was great to know that this young dude knew that. It shows his where his head is at. He's not out here for the fun and games. He really is a historical, a historian in hip hop. You know, what I'm saying and, and knowledgeable of what what is really going on. And that's why his music comes out the way he does. And that's why he's separated from a lot of people because. In the same way I look at Outkast was separated. Yeah. You know, everybody was over here, they were over there. And like I said, I wish we could have did a lot more, like going on tour with each other, you know, just some other things. But what he did for me is he put me on a Pulitzer, a, a, a only album, the only album that was awarded a Pulitzer Award in the whole music business, in the whole history of music. Yeah, uh, that's Yeah. You know, so my voice was being heard in countries I never even been to. And it's the only Pulitzer Award. And, and for me to be on that, that speaks volumes for me. So COVID hit. And so your life was really, tr you know, transformed by COVID because you're a DJ. You spent a lot of time doing events and everything kind of got shut down. And then you got sick yourself. And out of this sickness, you developed a, an album. Why don't you talk a little bit about that moment in your life and, and this album that you released 30 years after your last album? I've been on the road from 88 to the pandemic course we're coming home and back and forth but you know on my whole life i've been traveling never had a chance to really sit down and relax and just you know just chill out always been on the road always booked which is a blessing not complaining but in the pandemic i had a chance to sit down and concentrate on other things without going on the road and you know just had a chance to concentrate on my sucker free clothing line and four or five different albums i did you know, other businesses I was looking at and doing. And, you know, I just had a chance to just do other stuff. And um, I seen some things that made me just say, you know what? I put a blueprint out there that's making everybody do it. So let me do something that nobody, that they can't do right now. And I did the Love album. What I did, I wrote Slap Key first, the first, the first song. And when I seen how good that came out, I just... Just kept going. God put a show, a, 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 a hand on my shoulder and just said, keep going. And I just kept going. I produced everything, wrote everything. I ain't asked nobody to get on it. But my daughter, an R&B artist and a reggae artist, I didn't ask no mainstream artists to get on it. I just wanted to do everything myself. And it came out, and I must say it came out like a masterpiece to me. And those are the compliments I've been getting all across the board, man. I haven't got one complaint about any record on my album since it came out. All I've gotten, this is a masterpiece. This is an iconic album. This is a great album. My only uphill battle is I know that everybody don't know it's there. And that's my problem because I'm independent. You know, I don't yes. have no big, you know, machine behind me. I'm doing things myself. So it makes it a little bit more, you know, new, but it was more work, a lot more work. But once everybody knows it's there, you know, it becomes a part of their life, you know, because it's, it's that's the way the album was designed. That's why it's called The Love. My mother's on the cover with me. Yeah, I was going to say, you put your mom on the cover. Yeah. Yeah, my daughter's on the record with me, Uptown, Rena Love. So, you know, um, if you listen to me on the album, you hear the way, you know, my, how, I'm, how I'm rhyming on the album is airtight. Everything is perfect, you know, and the messages and the concepts, everything is, you know, it's a balance in the album. You can listen to it with your grandfather. You can listen to it with your son. You know, and, and it's 
It's a really good album, man. So, but with an album like that, it's for the time. It's, it's time. This is not for the time. So you, it keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. And when you own it, you can do what you need to do. Yeah. It, should the, the world hear it? So that's what I'm yeah. on right now. Yeah. Well, no, it's a beautiful album, and and it's streaming everywhere. So if you are listening to us and seeing us, that uh, please check out this uh, love album from Kid Capri. Well, kid, man, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk to me, man. I'm just a real big fan, and um. I'm glad I saw you a few weeks ago and just got a chance to just, you know, you just tapped into my brain because I, um, you know, I have to deal with all of the current music. And I love when I hear a set of just kind of everything. And, you know, you just, you know, you're just an amazing uh, DJ and a hip hop historian. You're on the Bronx Walk of Fame. The the new uh, hip hop museum in the Bronx is going to do something special with you. So. You know, we just wanted to make sure you got your flowers, man. You on a proud family. We didn't even get into that. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I mean, come on, bro. That's amazing. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. uh, and I I do see your daughter on the come up. And so you must be super proud to to welcome her into the business, but also to be sort of an advisor and guide her through the process and, and, uh, you know, watch her grow. I think I think that's that's super cool to be able to see something like that i know you're proud to see how he's smiling he's so he's proud that's that's just that's just beautiful man so kid man uh thank you so much for the time bro and uh big big fan and uh you know keep going bro like you know what i mean just keep keep making history and uh i'm excited to say that uh you're someone who i've watched literally from the beginning till today and i just always admired you and respected you and uh excited for you man because uh you know you've done some amazing things in this business thank you brother i appreciate it man it means a lot to me cole for sure coming up on the next backstory podcast hip-hop icon special ed that was the only thing that impressed me cars don't impress me so seeing somebody with a fancy car didn't really impress me it was just like all right well that's what you wanted to spend your money on the Backstory Podcast with Colby Kolb is an Urban One Incorporated Reach Media Pod is Good production, hosted and executive produced by yours truly, Colby Kolb, edited by Donkus. Follow us on Twitter at BackstoryPCC, on Instagram, Get the Backstory. Senior Director of Podcast Operations, Sierra Reed, for sales and corporate partnerships, Josh Romani and Michelle Marino. Digital Marketing, Walter Gaynor, J.R. Smith, and Tim Hall. Thanks again for listening to the Backstory Podcast.